0: Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design.
1: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 361.
0: Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 361. You're listening to. My guest today is mastering engineer Patrick Keene, who is located in Portland, Maine, and comes to us as a referral from our good friends, former WCA guest Jason Phelps and Todd Hutchison from episodes 355 and 356, respectively. And they are all located in the same building, so a very tight knit community there in Portland, Maine. As we always do, we talk about Pat's journey into the world of mastering and where he is as an audio professional today. Patrick Keen, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's celebrate a belated birthday. Mm. Well, we're not celebrating my birthday, but we are celebrating the belated birthday of the podcast, believe it or not. Yeah, it slipped my mind, I guess. Seven years have passed because the first episode came out September 2014, and if you're listening to this episode in a timely fashion, we are partway into November. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm a couple months off of uh, celebrating. So, seven years. Yeah, that's a lot of podcasts. That's a lot of time. And um, if you've stuck with me for this entire time, well, thank you. First off, and uh, man. I can't believe y'all don't get tired of my voice and tired of listening to me ask these questions. Hey, many of you hang in there and I'm really uh, appreciative of, of the listenership. I've grown over the years as the show has gone on. I've gotten better at what I do. Everything that I preach about, I've gotten better at. Some things I slip here and there, but you know, basically on the whole, I continue moving forward just as I'm encouraging you to. And I hope that As the years have gone by, as you followed the show, that you too have grown. And remember, doesn't matter if you're pro, you can still grow. There's plenty of room to learn, plenty of people to learn from, plenty of opportunity to expand our minds, expand everything about our audio profession that we do. Many of you who I've met have asked me this, and many people that I know just ask me when they. You know, they say, oh, my gosh, that's a lot of episodes. Well, how long are you going to go for? How many years? How many episodes? And the answer is, is I don't know. I just keep going. Uh, I don't know if it's just habit or not, but I continue to get a lot out of this show. And yes, there are times when it's a pain in the ass and I don't want to get it out, but I do Uh, because I know you all are counting on it. I know you all really enjoy it. I hear words of praise all the time, which I really appreciate. You know, you all send me great uh, emails and text messages, and for those of you that have left comments over at uh, Apple Music or iTunes or whatever they're calling it these days, thank you so much. Those are great messages, and I read those, and I just think you can't stop. There's no way you can stop because people get a lot out of this. So there it is. I don't know what the plan is. It's too early to call it at that, but. You know, maybe it's going to be 500, maybe it's going to be 10 years. I really don't know. So in the meantime, enjoy it. I'll continue to do it as usual. I have a coffee cup in my hands. And so I'm going to raise it to the show and to all of you who listen and say, cheers, happy birthday to Working Class Audio. Appreciate all the support you all have given me throughout the years. And let's, uh, let's keep going here and uh, let's keep learning, right? That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Patrick Keane here on the Working Class Audio Podcast.
0: Pat, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate you having me on this podcast today. It's an absolute honor and a pleasure to be here.
1: We have to thank our friends over at Acadia Recording there in Portland because they were the ones that hit me to you. I'm talking about Jason Phelps and Todd Hutchison, former WCA guests on episodes 356 and 355 or 55 and 56. Yep. You know, I always go down this path first with everybody, so I'll go down it with you and
0: ask, where did you grow up? I grew up in Portland. Actually, I grew up on Peaks Island, which is three miles off the shore of Portland, and it's a three-mile-long island. It was nice. As a kid, you do very little in the sense that there is no screen time. So you're out playing ball, you're riding your bike, you're fishing. You're out swimming in the wintertime. You're on your sled. With, you're hanging with all your friends, and there's no to go. You're locked on the island, which is really kind of a cool upbringing.
1: Yeah, it's such a drastic difference to how kids
0: grow up today. It really is. I mean, I have a, a son and a daughter, and they're, <laughs> they're constantly on their phones, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's kind of what it is. But that upbringing that I had, we didn't really watch a lot of TV. It was out doing things you know, we're out playing ball, we're entertaining ourselves away from technology, which somethings to be said for that I think it's a be nice if we could get back to that,
1: yeah oh I know my my boys are the same way, always on their phones, my especially my oldest and it's interesting if if you think back to that time period when we were growing up with technology, technology wasn't as accessible to the average person. I think the extent of technology for me growing up was. Beyond the television or the stereo, maybe a, a, a little cassette recorder, but there was nothing to really get your your hands into because computers were not really what they are today, and it was it was a different thing. And was it like that for you?
0: Yes, basically, we didn't have cable. We had three TV stations, one of them being PBS, and the other actually four, but only three came in. And you really didn't watch a lot of TV as a kid. I ended up doing a lot of like projects and and building stuff. My dad was a carpenter, so there's always scraps lying around. There was always something to tinker with, if you will. So I was making stuff and just entertaining myself that way, if I wasn't playing with my friends, I was just out exploring. And when I say the tinkering with the wood and and building stuff, he was like building stuff and trying to problem solve. And later on, my dad was always good about having me try to find the answer myself. There was one day we were, this is when I'm older, we're building a deck. He goes, okay, how are you going to make sure this is square? And I I knew the answer. I said, oh, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. And he's like, well, yeah, or you could look at the perfect numbers with, you know, five, four, three. So he was always trying to get me to figure the problem out with myself, which was a really valuable tool for me, learning how to teach myself things. It was invaluable. And I I, I thank him for that because we did a lot of projects together, building, doing decks, siding windows. He helped me with my house. And I basically save a lot of money, too, on fixing stuff in my house. But that that lesson of problem-solving took me through college and high school and, and what I do today, like finding the way to fix the problem of this audio or whatever needs to be done. Does
1: that, yeah. that make sense? Yeah. And I don't want to sound like the old man, but at the risk of sounding like the old man, I wonder how those audio engineers who are coming up in today's world who grew up with many more distractions than you or I did, how their experience is different compared to ours. My upbringing was spent, I spent a lot of time flexing my imagination with, you know, Star Wars came out when I was seven. So I was playing with Star Wars figures all the time and just imagining scenarios and was at a friend's house trying to, we were trying to make our own eight millimeter Star Wars movie and, just exploring that creative element and also, you know, playing with cassette recorders. So I wonder if that that time spent with problem-solving like you're talking about or imagination, how that differs for the younger up-and-comer now and how that has a direct effect later down the line for audio.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I wonder that too. You're probably old enough where you probably worked on one-inch or two-inch at some point. Oh, and totally. Going into the project, like, okay, we well, have to have everything right, do the pre-production first. So you're saving tape and you're, not punch it in a lot. And I think the younger guys, if they had that, that would be a blessing to them to understand like, okay, we have, we have a finite amount of tracks. We have a finite amount of time. Tape is expensive. So let's do pre-production first, then go in and do that. And that's what I started doing early on. And now with the advent of digital audio, we can have 200 tracks or go in and punch and fix stuff. We can move stuff where back then you didn't, you, you couldn't do that. So it was more about performance and being prepared and my upbringing, my dad was always making sure we were prepared. Show up to the job site with your tools, make sure you're on time. And those were life lessons. You know, we're up at five thirty six in the morning to go to school because we had to take the boat into school, and he was always up with us. So that lesson of being prepared, I ran a function band at one point. I taught lessons. Always having a second backup for a system, a PA system. Always bringing a second guitar. Making sure I was prepared for the gig, knowing the right tunes and having the charts and all that. That was important. Yeah, it would. I think having... That analog side for the younger guys might help. Although we've come light years as far as the digital aspect.
1: Yeah, because I don't want to go back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's
0: The convenience is great, I will say that. Although, I, I mean, tape is nice. That richness you get from the analog side is pretty nice. When did
1: audio come onto your radar? When did the technical aspect of record making come onto your radar?
0: So, I, I went to school for jazz guitar. I still am a player. I was playing gigs at 19 and then i started playing wedding work i was playing clubs and then got into the scene because i could read fairly well and i got hired by a, a good friend to play in a function band with him and then i played with him in this weddings corporate stuff and then i ran my own band at 23 24 i bought a pa system i i understand the whole process of it But I wanted the band to sound good. So my whole thing was I wanted to deliver a really good product for the client, for the bride, the corporate, whatever it would be. So I bought a really nice system. I had some experience running front of house boards. And for about seven or eight years, I ran the function band. And during that period of time, we would play a club in town, which was Granny Killums, which from the last one, I know you played at. Oh, yeah. And I played there on Wednesday nights, way back in the 90s. And Granny shut down and became a place called The Big Easy. And the Big Easy owner was a friend of mine. And he said, hey, I have these bands coming. and Could you bring your system in and run in front of house for them? And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, sure. And this was off nights when we weren't playing a Friday night or Saturday. It was usually a Sunday night or Monday or Tuesday night. And they would bring a different guy in on the, during the week. So, I cut my teeth doing front of house and I started doing some of my own project recording on a four track. And it wasn't until a little bit later where I had a friend, my friend Laura, and we started recording our own stuff. And I had other people say, Hey, I like the way it sounds. Can you do our stuff? So, I started producing records for friends and then it kind of snowballed. How I met Todd and Jason was I was teaching at this local music store and Jason was teaching there and Todd was working there. So, Todd took over Acadia and I started taking my projects over there to track drums and track bass and do some stuff that I couldn't do at my home. And it came to a point where I was spending a lot of time over a cage. And I said, why don't I just buy in with you a little bit and pick out some dates, you know, five or six dates out of, of the month or seven, what I need, and then take the stuff home and mix it at home. And that's how I met Todd. So that, that's, that started the recording process of working on records from start to finish. And what I mean by that is I wasn't just engineering. I would take these projects and these people weren't experienced in recording or so much producing their own stuff. So what I would do is I'd hire friends who were ex-musicians. We would do pre-production rehearsals and then first I'd meet with them, transcribe their music, write charts, come up with an arrangement for them. And then we'd do pre-production, go in the studio for a couple days, lay tracks, and then bring it home. And we would hash out the vocals or the parts that they might want to add so that's kind of what i was doing before the mastering and that was on that went on for like three or four years i bought equipment i bought some really nice mics mike Prees, Hmm. invested heavily in the equipment and todd was great so todd would help me engineer we block a couple days out he'd engineer i'd be a producer slash musician be in the room out of the room but i trusted his ears to get the sounds i was looking for and that was probably around 2000 2008 or 2009 Yeah, so I did that for a couple of years. And I had produced really good records that I was proud of. And then Todd approached me with a track. He goes, hey, can you clean this audio up? So I said, sure. I cleaned up the audio track using a program we all know. And mouth pops, clicks, all kinds of stuff. And I said, let me master the track for you. So I mastered the track. And then he came back and said, hey, the band would like to know if you could do the rest of the record. And I said, yeah, sure. That'd be great. So I mastered that record. And with a month, I had four more records come in. And I thought, okay. I liked the process of mastering. And I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants a little bit. Like, okay, I understood the process of it. I understood tracking and mixing. That was not a problem. So then I did mastering in the box for this record. So I thought, well, I like this. I like this side more than I do like tracking and mixing. And I said to Todd, let's do this. You keep the stuff here. I'm not going to mix. I'm not going to track anymore. I'm going to focus on the post side. And then I'm going to send people to you to do... The pre-production work and the mixing, because one thing that he's gifted and Jason's gifted at is they're both wonderful musicians and they both can write, read, and they understand how to put a song together. They can hear what a track needs. They're really good about getting the client to their best performance. And they just were better. Todd's gifted that way. And so is Jason. It was natural for me to tell Todd, you take over that side and I'll do the post-production. And I didn't look back.
1: You said you liked the mastering end of it better than the tracking or the pre-production part. Why do you think that is? What, what about your personality drives you to mastering?
0: That is a really good question. <laughs> I think because I'm a detail-oriented person, I'm a little OCD. I like to get into it. And it fascinated me. I like the fact that I could really just focus on the two-track and try to get to the best possible outcome I could. My motto is it always leaves better than it comes in, whatever it is. I try to do the best I possibly can to get that product to sound great for the client. But I, I, it really intrigued me, the mastering side. As soon as I did, I was drawn to it. I said, this is where I need to go. And there's definitely a market for this level of mastering. Yeah, and I didn't look back. So at that point, I really focused all my efforts. I didn't charge a lot for the records I was mastering, try and really hone the skills. So I Did a lot of reading, researching. The Bob Katz book was awesome. The John (laughs) Weiner book was great. There's a bunch of podcasts out there that are kind of cool. I do mostly reading, though, so I read a lot of blog posts. There's a bunch of white papers by Paul Frindle and Lavery. So I went into what's going on in the computer as far as, like, EQs, fers, different compressors, which I knew, but really what they were doing to the audio. And I went down that for about a couple years, just really teaching myself how to do this. And that was through reading and then doing test masters, working on running a master, going to the car, listen to headphones, and really trying to practice my craft, if you will.
1: Hmm. I love that. And the fact that you just went so down the rabbit hole there with what is actually happening. Now, you're in Portland, Maine, and some of the audience will know this, some won't, but the big elephant in the room at Portland, Maine, and mastering is Bob Ludwig. Yes. So did the shadow, the, the, the specter of Bob Ludwig's presence spook you at all and think, oh, who am I to, to do this?
0: That's a good question. <laughs> Not so much. I highly respect Bob and, and Adam. I just wanted to be able to get mastering for the people that didn't have the deep pockets to go to Gateway. And to be honest, I look at myself as like, they're big leagues. I'm probably double-A ball. I went into it because I have loved it and I enjoy the mastering side of it. And I'm still learning. I've been doing it about 13 years now. And I mean, I listened to those records those guys did, Bob and Adam, and they're brilliant. Those guys are so gifted at their craft. And I understand that Bob's been doing it 50 plus years and Adam's probably been doing it 15 plus years more than I have. I'm not worried about the shadow of them because I think we're servicing two different clientele.
1: Yeah. And there's enough work for for everybody.
0: Yeah, they're getting all the the top tier Taylor Swift's, the Springsteen's, and the clients I'm dealing with have a budget between five and 10 grand for tracking, mixing, and then mastering and pressing. So I'm servicing a clientele that probably is not going to go to Gateway, but some clients do save up that money to go there and they can do that. I think it's great for them to do because those guys do wonderful work.
1: I'm looking at your website at patkeenmastering.com and- Looking through your gear, my next question would be, okay, so you did your research and you were doing some in-the-box stuff at first, and it's clear that you bought into an analog chain. Tell me about your decision-making process in buying that gear, and how did you organize your your thoughts about this and, and kind of test your theories about what worked for you?
0: So I used the in-the-box programs. To learn, there's a bunch of different products I use, and everybody probably has bought them at some point. So I use the in the box compressors, limiters, EQs to more or less ear train, if you will, frequency and how to gain RMS, how to gain loudness. And in my research, I came upon a website that had different moderators on it, this workshop, if you will. There was a section for microphones, there's a section for mixing, there's a section for tracking, like all kinds of really, like, David Bach has a section of microphones, so like he's the moderator of that section. And the moderator of the mastering section was Dave Collins. Hmm. And there's probably about 100 guys on there that are all named mastering engineers that would post blogs about what they're doing. And all I did was, at the end of the night, three hours a night, was read these blog posts. And they were talking about, at one point, their signal chains and what they use, and they're talking about different compressors, different EQs what worked and what didn't work. So I got an inside information of like what worked on these things. So I decided to take the plunge and I bought a mastering EQ. I bought a Manly Massive and I bought a really nice compressor. I bought an ESA, the pendulum, and added that to my chain. So I pitched out into my compressor or sometimes I would switch the chain, EQ first, a compressor first, and start using the same settings I was using in the box to find what I was looking for. And I found that analog EQ and analog compression work way better than some of the plugins I was using. Hmm. And at that point, that sold me because the compressor was really nice. That ES-8 is a really nice compressor. So at that point, I said, I need to really explore the analog side because I could do more with less. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I like the sound of it. I like the tactile, being able to put my hands on it too. So that was the journey. And from that point, it was buying a piece, auditioning a piece, seeing if it worked for my chain or if it didn't, and then I pull pieces in and out. And over the course of 10 years, I've pretty much found things that work well for me that I like and work well for my chain. So I don't just buy something to have it in the rack and like, ooh, look at that, that's really cool. It has to be useful. Some things work for other guys, some things don't work for some guys, but it has to work for me. It's a hammer to me, it's a screwdriver, it's utilitarian. If it doesn't work, then I'm not gonna use it.
1: That process of bringing gear in and taking gear out, It's a process. The gear shows up, you unbox it, you put it into the chain, you start to play with it. And when you come to the decision that it's not going to work, for whatever reason, how long is that process and do you end up losing money trying to resell that gear or or are you figuring it out in time enough to return it to where you bought it?
0: I block out some time so I have time enough to return it. But usually I do some due diligence before I purchase the unit. It's not a, a whim. I'm like, oh, I'm going to try this. It's, I read about it, re- reviews. I look at the specs on it and see like, what is it going to do for me? Let's say it's a compressor. I'm like, okay, it's a VCI. I know what that's going to do. I look at the specs on it. Will it work for me? What's the noise floor and all that ratio? And then if I think it's going to fit a part of my chain that I need, then I'll purchase it and then I'll, I'll use it for a week off and on in between sessions and I'll, I'll use material that I've mastered before. Pull that up and see how it reacts for that material. I've I've mastered prior. If it doesn't work, well, okay, and it goes back. If it does work, then I put it in the chain. It, it it finds a place in the rack.
1: Now I know this is hard to pin down, but what causes you to hold onto a piece of gear like when you say it works in the chain versus it doesn't work? Any way you can kind of pinpoint that?
0: Certain EQs, as you probably know, or certain compressors, have a sonic signature. Certain ones might be used for certain genres, like jazz, I might use the GML for, if it's a brock tune, it might, might go the Sontag route. So it has to serve a purpose in a sense. Like it may get used 20% or 30% of the time, but at some point it's going to get used. And that's valuable to me because I like having that option, I like having that, that color palette, if you will. So if it's not getting used, like I just got rid of a piece because I didn't turn it on for eight months. And it's at one point it was great, worked on some stuff, but after a while, I'm like, I'm not turning this thing on. It's not serving a purpose, so I'm just going to move it and move on. And I took a hit, which is fine. But that's the price you pay to have that option.
1: Yeah. When we say that we're trying to fill, you know, all the the needs, how do you determine what those needs are? I could see the difference between, you know, the backs and the 2BQ. But, like, how deep into that
0: can one get? I kind of look at it like if you're a guitar player, you have a Telecaster and you got a Les Paul, and you got a Strat, and you got a 335. (laughs) I could go to the gig with a Telecaster and play the whole gig. Not a problem. But a 335 adds a bigger, fatter sound to an extent. So the first two sets, you might play dinner set with a 335, then you switch over to the dance set and the rock set with your Telecaster. They kind of cross over a little bit, but they offer different things. So some of the pieces have a different sonic signature, and what I'm looking for, depending on the track, or the record i have a feeling which eq i'm going to use and which compressors or compressor i'm going to use in, in that sense because they impart a certain signature like a vca is going to sound different than an optical a 2bq is going to sound different than uh the the SonTech or the gml the gml is going to be like a little cleaner it's just and it's gonna be faster in a sense so i may want to approach the record that way and that happens i usually get the tracks prior to my master mm-hmm. a day before or a couple of days before i will pre the tracks, and get a sense of what the record sounds like. If it's a rock record or jazz or whatever it is, I get an idea what they're kind of going for, and I make some notes. As I'm editing, fixing stuff, which is pops and clicks, whatever, DCE offset, or I make mental notes, I write notes down on the pad and say, okay, we need to bring out the low frequency or something has to happen. And in my mind, I know which kind of chain I'm going to use for that record.
1: Do plugins also factor in into that at all? In, in other words... The different EQs and different compressors in the analog world will bring you one particular sound. Do you employ plugins to also be a part of the arsenal?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I have a boatload of plugins as well. The the plugins have come light years, I think, since I first started. The past couple years, they just sound really, really, really good. I still prefer some of the analog chain over some of the the digital stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's some digital limiters that are great. There's some digital EQs that are really, really nice. And there's some saturation plugins that are really good too, that sometimes just work. And it's not always the same. It's not like I approach everything, oh, I'm going to use this chain and, and just run with it. Some days are different. Some records are different. And I'm trying to find the optimal sound for the record. And whatever it may be, I might use a different plugin. I may use a different chain setting. I may change the processors in the chain to get, that desired result.
1: Let's shift gears for a bit. I wanna talk a bit about your clientele and business and what is the the overall philosophy that you use to run your mastering business? What have you found that works? How do you mean? In terms of dealing with clients and billing, is it just you? Or are there others involved in your mastering business?
0: It's a sole proprietorship, so I run everything. Clients deal directly with me. Usually it's an email, a text, sometimes. It's all pretty much word of mouth from guys who I've worked for before. The website helps, but the clientele that come in usually say, hey, you did so-and-so's record, that's why I'm here. Or so-and-so told me to call you, and I'm here. And I deliver the file. Pretty much everything now is flown in, Dropboxed or Hightailed or whatever. I have a discussion with the client what they want, and if they have some references they want me to check out, what they think they want their record to go towards, I'll listen to that stuff and we have the conversation regarding how loud they want to go. The loudness wars, I try to steer them away from going too loud because certain stuff I don't think is going to translate that well. But we have that discussion. We talk about their goals, and I do one or two or three passes in different ways. Take one track and try to figure out where they want to go with it and have them listen to that track and give feedback. And once they like that track, then I use that as my template for the rest of them. I deliver the files, and they pay the invoice. And I've never had a problem not paying me. I go to the files and it's like, great, they send the check or the Venmo or the PayPal, whatever it is.
1: It's pretty straight ahead, it sounds like. It sounds like you don't really have a lot of challenges in that area.
0: No. Most most of the people that come here are great people. They're happy to have the record master have the process coming to a completion. No, I've never had a problem knocking wood, thankfully. I mean, this is a really great area. I mean, most people are really good. They don't try to take advantage. And the clientele is pretty much, just some indie label stuff. There's a lot of local bands, a lot of people that are, they're hobbyists, so they're recording a record in their basement or their back porch and they just are happy to have a product at the end and that's who I'm seeing. When you were first
1: getting off the ground mastering, since you'd come from, you know, the production side of it first and the recording side of it, did you have any nervousness or hesitation? Because... We know that mastering is that's the last step before it's gonna go out so it's like the buck stops with you so was there any hesitancy there on your part
0: yeah i mean i was a little nervous at first i wasn't charging a lot of money for the records i was doing the first couple years i mean very little it was more you guys are paying me to learn how to do this but my quality control at the ends i would listen to a record three or four times before i even hand to the client early on it was like okay I'm looking for inner samples. I'm looking for just things as a musician, as a listener, what am I listening for that is not going to translate? And there were times when I went back and go, oh, that was awful. I got to go back and fix that. Or Most of the time, the product came out really well. It was a really good product coming out for what I had. And it got better and better. The more I learned, the better the product came out. But there was a little bit of, yeah, a little bit of apprehension in the early days. But as I got more confident in the process, it felt better. I don't know if that makes sense, but...
1: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, just the process of when you start, whether you're mastering or not, you could be mixing, but let's say you're a person who's just got a computer and a very simple audio interface. And you think, well, how much better could it be than this? And then it's only when you can A, B different products, whether it's softwares and hardware combinations, and you start to hear the differences in things. And that's when it starts to... Like when you know that there's something better out there at this point, that's when my, not gear lust, but my desire to take it up a notch. It's like, right. okay, these monitors aren't working in this room. I've tried everything. Let me try a different set of monitors. Let me try. And when you get to A, B those things, that's when it becomes clear. Oh yeah. Okay. I got to switch that out.
0: That is a good, yeah.
1: That drives my decision-making a lot. It's like, okay, It could be a a different microphone on my voice for the podcast or, you know, a set of headphones or monitors or whatever. I'm sure it's the same for many.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you. My gradual acquisition of gear, the primary thing was I wanted to get the cleanest possible signal chain to get audio coming back to me. And I did purchase a set of converters that were awesome. and. Then a local company who represents a pretty high-end audio converter company, they're good friends. And this gentleman would call me up and say, hey, Pat, I get this EQ you got to try. I got to get this compressor. And he would bring this thing over and we'd drink some coffee and, and listen to this EQ and I'd tell him what I thought and he'd listen to it and he'd, it was just kind of like a, a party on gear stuff. Well, then he came to me, he goes, I've got these converters you have to hear. I said, okay, yeah, I'll bring him over. So he let me borrow this, the converters I have now, he let me borrow them for about three weeks. And it it was very subtle they were 10% better than what I was currently using. But it was, you could definitely hear the difference. And we're talking like audio spectrum, the spatial frequency. And I knew him like, I need to upgrade these converters. And, and he was really generous in giving them to me for cost. And come to find out later that a bunch of other people switched over these converters in the industry. Heavy mastering engineers, not too far from me. <laughs> a lot of companies out West are switching over these converters. We're always looking for that it's not the best thing. I'm looking for something to deliver me the best product. That's what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. I don't need to have the newest toy. I just want to have something that works well for me, that gives me a clear picture of what I'm doing. You don't know what you don't know until you hear it. Yeah, Converters for me were, that was like a, a mind-blowing thing when I went from the prosumer model to a really high-end company. And then three notches later, I'm at the converter, I think is giving me a clear picture of what I'm hearing. And I'm sure on your end, your converters, your speakers, and part of it is your room, too. Like, what are you hearing in that room?
1: Yeah, I think it's really fascinating to me how much someone's room can affect. Like, one set of monitors in one room is going to be great versus another room where it's not. I had some speakers in this room that were far too big long ago, and I knew they weren't working. So I've gone through, I've switched monitors now twice since that and i've arrived at what i think are a great set of monitors for this size room it's shocking when you hear the difference in those changes and you're like god why didn't i do this long ago
0: right well i think you have to go through that process that's the learning curve i think one of the things i always come back to my dad was like don't be afraid to make mistakes because that's how you learn you have to make mistakes to learn part of that process is figuring out what's going to work in your room what's going to work in your chain Early on, I made all kinds of mistakes with EQing incorrectly or, or compressing incorrectly. That was the, the learning process. And I did kind of on purpose to see what things were doing, to see how far I could go with things. And that was invaluable to really mess up a track. Like, what did I do wrong there? Oh, let's go back and, and not do that again or, you know, see how far I can take it. But yeah, learn, that learning process, I don't think there's a set set of monitors or set set of converters that are the be-all end-all. I think it's whatever works in your chain. I've had people say, like, I like these speakers. These are better than the other ones. And when it comes down to it, it's what you're used to listening for reference material. So if you've got a a really mid-level set of monitors and you're used to hearing reference material and you get your ears accustomed to those, then they're going to work fine for you, I think. I don't think you need to spend a lot of money to go get a good product.
1: I also think that some people sometimes are hesitant to change pieces of gear. The selling of a piece of gear is a process. Oh, yeah. Maybe not as... as much of a process as selling a car, but you've got to take good pictures, list it, come up with a price, a description, and then deal with the aftermath of that. If, if you're on Reverb.com, for example, and you're accepting offers, or actually eBay for that matter, you know, you got to deal with all the low ballers and tire kickers. And then once it's sold, then you got to box it up and ship it out. And it, it's a time-consuming process to do it. So if you're not in the habit of doing it, You might be hesitant to change a piece of gear based on that obstacle alone. Something I've gotten over long ago, I'm like, oh, that doesn't work. Pack it up. Let's sell it.
0: Right. Yeah. If it's not working for you, then why use it? I look at it as it's a tool to me. My dad was always good about make sure you have good tools. And I have some nice saws. I've got a nice table saw. I've got (laughs) some really good stuff. My skill saw is 20 years old. Yeah. So the tools I choose have to work for me. I don't buy them because of the bling or the the fancy ads. I use them because every day they turn on number one and they work. I'm not worried about it not working. And I know what's going to do. And I think that's a valuable lesson is make sure you buy the right tools. Take the time to save the money up and get the right tool. Whether it's a mic pre or microphone, an EQ, if it's a good, good solid piece of gear, it's going to last a long time and you're going to get a lot of use out of it. And that use is going to save you money in the long run, I think. Do you tend to buy used or new? Most of my stuff is new because I like the warranty. Not that I'm concerned about the warranty because the stuff's all built pretty rugged. But it's really hard to find used mastering gear as far as some of the stuff. I mean, you can find some pieces, but I have a good relationship with this one company and they take really good care of me.
1: They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app, check it out. Let's talk about your room a bit. So you ended up taking over a space over at the Acadia building, is that right? That's correct, yeah. And was it built out and ready to go, or did you build it out?
0: Okay, so when I was working out of my house, I built a room in my third floor. I kind of semi-tuned it. It wasn't great. A lot of insulation, rock wall, built some base traps, all that fun stuff. And Todd had called me and said, hey, the tenant next door is leaving, which is about almost a 1,000 square feet, and it was wide open. Are you interested and i said yeah because my wife my wife was like i love you i love the fact that you're doing what you're doing but we need to get the business out of the house she wanted to have the house for herself not have clients come to the house which i was really down with too i want to go to the studio and come home not always be at my studio so the space was wide open and i contacted a gentleman by the name of lou clark sonic space in boston who's a acoustic engineer and he came up and looked at the space we kind of went a little back and forth and said about design. And he designed the room. So then I built it out. I had a friend who's a drummer who's also a carpenter. And him and I, over the course of three days, stick-framed it. And once we got stick-framed, I then started building it on my own.
1: What is stick-framing?
0: Building the frame of the room inside the building. Uh, okay. So you basically, you framed it out, right? We fr- Yeah, sorry, we framed it out. Yeah. Okay. We okay. framed it out. Different terminology. And, yeah. <laughs> we, we framed it out. It took us a couple days to do it. And then once... Once that was done, I ended up finishing the process myself. So I would build out what I needed to build out. I hired a friend who was a sheetrock guy and he came and we put isomex clips. We did the hat channel, two courses of 5 sheetrock, green glue. I did a drop ceiling, floored the, the floor off the building. It's on a slab, so I jackhammered the slab up, re-poured the slabs, so the floor was completely level, self-leveling cement. Yeah, so I built it out. It took me about two months to build the room. And then I brought Lou back from Sonic Space and we tested it. And I was kind of a little worried. I'm like, oh, did I build it did I build it right? Oh, yeah. You know, is it gonna be and it came out pretty flat. It was pretty nice. And we spent about six, seven hours just basically moving the speakers like half inch, three quarters of an inch, figuring out the optimum space for these speakers. And we found the optimum point of the speakers and then set everything else around that from the 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 sweet spot, the listening point. Hmm.
1: Man, it is a process.
0: Did you build out your space?
1: No, this space at my house was pre-existing. It's an odd space in that I don't think any of the walls are truly parallel, and I don't know why. So whoever built this, either they did a really shit job for for one purpose, but for my purposes, it actually worked out well. There's a wall in front of me is angled slightly from the wall behind me. It's a mid-century modern house, so the ceiling slopes upwards— The sidewalls are not parallel. It's a little strange. It's a small room. But I did go through the process when I had a studio in San Francisco. I had Bob Hodas, who's a popular acoustician out here. Bob got involved, and we stripped down the room, this control room, to bare bones, stripped everything out, and then started moving speakers and plotting. And Bob came in and did his thing. And yeah, it's a giant undertaking.
0: Oh yeah. For me, it wasn't a regular build. Everything was to certain tolerances. There's a plan and you just have to follow that plan, which is normal, I guess, in, in construction, but this construction is different from building a house. You're you're trying to keep out the outside world and make sure that the, the room sounds good, that you're hearing everything you want to hear. And it was a process. And I'm glad I did it. I don't regret building the room out, doing the HVAC you know, with a we I mean, people talk about splits, so I did a split. Power is, I have a step-up, step-down transformer, so I'm getting clean power. Can you tell me about that? So I'm using one of the Furman touring boxes. I come into the Furman box, and it spits out 120. So I'm independent from electric lights, fridge, anything from that, and it's clean. So it was a hefty expense. I mean, they're not cheap, but I've got clean power for all my audio. All my audio is on one one circuit. Yeah, which that's the way to do it. If you're going to do it, if you're going to spend 10,000 bucks on a mastering EQ, you want proper power for it. You need to make sure things are are right. After I built the room, I sat here for two weeks just listening to source audio. And it was eye-opening, like stuff that I wasn't hearing at home. The first three octaves, the fundamental was like, wow, you can hear it. You can hear what's going on. It was great. It was also like, it was daunting because now I'm like, really, you really have to pay attention to what's going on across the spectrum. And I, I... Didn't look back. I'm glad I did it. And it was a good learning process.
1: Seriously, a game of inches. It's like, okay, what can I do here in the room? The power, the gear choices, the positioning, like, oh, just so much piling up, all to have the most transparent setup so you can make the best decisions.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It's it's funny you say small increments. It's true. It really is. To gain X amount in conversion or, or X amount in, it's really not that much, but It does add up. It is cumulative. From a mentor perspective, is there any
1: person or persons that you could cite that had a big impact on you in doing
0: this? Not really. I kind of fell into it. I didn't know I wanted to do this. I was just a gigging musician. I taught guitar. I wanted to do what Todd and Jason were doing, which was produce records. And so I thought, I'm "Like, I'm oh, this, is, this, I can do this. This is fun. I like this. And it wasn't until I did the first record that the light went off and said, this is really cool. I really enjoy this side of the business. I have some mentors that are musicians who I studied with on guitar that were pinnacle in my career, but not so much the audio mm-hmm. side, side of things.
1: And then from a financial perspective, do you have an overarching philosophy? How do you approach money as an audio professional?
0: Well, that's that's one aspect of my career that I'm really good at. And my wife always says, you're not a typical musician because you actually understand business. And I sock a lot of money away. And I've been doing that my whole entire life, my whole entire career as a musician. At one point, having two or three jobs, as we all have had, you know, you're delivering pizza or washing dishes or something. You're just socking the money away. And I'm really good about, I don't really spend any money other than on rent or the, all my gear is paid for. And if I do purchase a piece of gear, I'm paying cash for it. Every mastering job, the money goes in the bank. And at the end of the year, I look at what I own in taxes. I pay the government and whatever's left over goes in the savings account. There are obviously some operating costs, but you have to pay my mortgage and all that. So I, I take out a certain amount every month to pay the bills, but the big chunk of it goes in the savings account or goes in the DBA account.
1: And do you pay yourself a salary? Yeah,
0: in a sense, yes. Every month, I draw a certain amount out from the account to pay bills and run the household stuff.
1: Yeah. It's interesting when you arrive at that point where your gear is kind of set and a couple pieces may move in or out. But when you stop spending and you've got business and the money's coming in and you don't spend, I've had this occur recently where it's like, I'm not spending and I'm bringing money in, but I'm also not really paying very close attention to how much is going in until a certain point. I'm like, oh, I probably should uh, open QuickBooks up and take a look at things. And it's shocking sometimes when you've been doing that as a habit, and then you log into your bank account, and you're like, "Oh, oh yeah. there's <laughs> there's some money in there," and that's when you have to exercise great constraint because you're like, oh, you know, I could buy, never mind.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Again, this comes back. My dad, I'm first generation. He came in over in '62 from Ireland, so that whole being really budget conscious was. Ingrained early on, so I'm very conscious of what I spend personally or for the studio. I look at the budget, like, oh, do I have a certain amount of money to budget to purchase a piece of gear or whatever it is? I I kind of say, do I need that? Is it going to work for the business? And it may or may not. So I really focus on try not to spend money unless I have to. Just kind of socking it away, and then and at the end of the year, instead of when you have to pay the taxes, or you pay quarterly, go to my account and say, okay, what do I have here? And then he might say, oh, you might want to spend a little bit money here, or. It's nice to see I get a big chunk at the end of the year that can go into the savings account or go towards things that we need at the house or whatever it would be. But I always look at it like I don't have a lot of money there. Just keep putting the checks in any the, the account.
1: You know, it's funny because I think Todd told me the same thing, something to the same effect of he's operating from a position of we don't have any money.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> we, we cut from the same cloth that way. And maybe it's a Yankee mentality. We talk about the Northeast, you know. Mm-hmm. There's a whole mentality up here, like kind of pack rats, like people save stuff. I mean, I've got jars in my basement filled with screws and I've got pounds of nails that my my dad had for years. I still have them. And then my mentality is like, I'm going to use that screw someday. or I'm going <laughs> to use those nails instead of throwing them out, you know, yeah. my wife's like, hey, what are you going to do with all the stuff in the basement? I'm like, we're going to use that at some point. That half piece of plywood, I'll use it someplace, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and she's, she's imploring me to get rid of the stuff. And I'm saying, no, no, we're going to use that. It's that's very important. It's important. Right. And that's this Yankee mentality that we talk about like Mainers up here. At some point you're going to need that or you're going to use it. And that's how I approach the business side. Like, yeah, I have maybe, let's say a four or five grand I can play with, but something's going to happen down the road that I may need that money. I may mm. need to use that for something. I was like, you never know. And that's how I approach. It. And I think that's how Todd approaches it too we we have the same mindset that way
1: do you have a an approach to what you may or may not do with retirement
0: yeah i love what i do and i my wife and i talk about that and we we have a retirement we could do i might go part-time i'm the type of guy that i can't sit idle for too long i have to do something whether i'm playing guitar or house projects or i'm not the guy to sit there and on the couch i relax but more often than not i'm doing something you know i'm Walking the dog, take my son to school. We're doing something, and then I'm off to work. And then when I come home, there's stuff happening. So, it
1: seems that in our business, there is, and maybe this is more than other businesses, but there seems to be a large amount of the audio workforce that works well into their 90s.
0: Wow! Yeah, I never thought of that.
1: Just thinking of he's not with us anymore, of course. But the great Al Schmidt, I mean,
0: Al oh, was yeah. in
1: Al was in his 90s. Wow! And there's others like him that aren't too far behind. It seems that our business is more forgiving when it comes to older people, whereas some other businesses may be more discriminatory and our business seems to value age and experience greatly.
0: I would agree with that. I have a good friend who has 20 plus years on on me for engineering and I will often call him, I have an ATR 102 and he's probably logged more hours on those machines than I have. And it's, mm. I'll have questions about, hey, I've got, my Atari's acting up. What do you think? And he'll be buying him lunch. He comes over and takes a look and says, like, oh, it's this or this. Yeah, because he's got that wealth of experience of running tape machines from the 70s on up. And it's nice to hang with him too. I enjoy hanging with my friend, John. But yeah, he's got a boatload of experience and I value that. It's something that when you get older, as uh, the older I get, the more I learn. You're always learning something. And that's invaluable. And I think you're right that the guys that came before us, have this invaluable knowledge it's wonderful to have that i'm glad we have these people
1: it is and it's funny to hear you say you know you can't sit idle for long and over the years i've observed older people in their retirement and what they do and i have a neighbor in fact my next door neighbor he's retired has been for years and i think we've been in this house for 10 years and i think in that 10 years i have watched him work outside in his yard every day because he really doesn't have a particular passion other than, and maybe that's a, his passion is caring for his yard and stuff. And their yard looks great, of, of course, because he's out there every day. But I think to myself, I would go absolutely apeshit if I had to work in the yard every day. I'd rather, much rather just spend my retirement years or what, whatever, your, my aging years, working in audio.
0: Yeah, my dad... I did this project years ago where we renovated a house. We had to actually had to pick up the house and move it. I took a break from playing for a little bit. And we literally picked up this house and moved it on a new foundation with two cranes. And what I had to do is I had to brace it for the move. I had to remove two chimneys. And I played a gig that night, Friday night, and I went Saturday morning at seven o'clock the next day to go take the chimneys down. And my dad, who was 72, was on the peak of the roof with a sledgehammer, already had one chimney down. And he's he was giving me the business like oh geez it's seven o'clock where are you You're supposed to be here at six thirty, and it's my it's my project I was laughing but he loved it and it kept him young because he helped me with that project and every day he was on that job he was doing math he was doing something to keep his mind active so yeah. I really think it's important for us to keep our minds active instead of sitting in front of the tube yeah and he was with me he was with my brother my friend a couple of friends who were also contractors on this job he was having the time of his life and. I'm glad that I did that with him. I'm, I'm glad I had done those projects with him. I hope when I get older, I'm able to do that with my son, have some projects to do with him and not sit idle. I do things because I think in your case, if you keep going, it'll be fun for you and it'll keep you active. I mean, you don't have to do it 50 hours. Maybe you do doing in 15 or 20 hours, but it'll be fun and keep you active and keep your brain, keep your intellect intact.
1: Yeah, you know, I figure as long as my ears are working and people are paying me, then great.
0: Yeah. Why stop? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you have something to offer, which is wonderful.
1: So, Pat, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to your website. I encourage all my listeners to stop on over to patkeenmastering.com and check it out. Have a read. There's a bit to consume there, actually, and it's a nicely done site. It's nice to look at. Thank you. Well done. So I'll include that in the show notes, and you can check that out.
0: Thank you for having me today. This was really fun. It was nice to talk to you and and share some of your experience.
1: Yeah, I'm really, really happy that you could make it on the show. I know the listeners will enjoy this conversation. So thank you again, and you take care. You too. Patrick Keene here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, if you have a guest suggestion, there is a guest suggestion form on the Working Class Audio website, which you can, of course, find at workingclassaudio.com, simply enough. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And as always, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks